TUC Radio, Time of Useful Consciousness. Daniel Ellsberg, The Doomsday Machine, The Secret Launch Plans for U.S. Nuclear Weapons. From Ellsberg's 2017 book, The Doomsday Machine, Confessions of a Nuclear War Planner. In 1971, the young defense analyst Daniel Ellsberg had taken on the Nixon administration, risking his career and freedom to leak the Pentagon Papers. He showed the world that the U.S. government had lied repeatedly about beginning and winning the war on Vietnam. Now, over 40 years later, Ellsberg is sharing the research from his most ambitious project yet, The Doomsday Machine, a stunning insider's tale of American nuclear procedures. Ellsberg was a nuclear war planner during the 1950s and 60s. In The Doomsday Machine, Ellsberg offers an expose about, quote, the nuclear war planners, of which I was one, who have written plans to kill billions of people, calling it a conspiracy to commit omnicide, the death of everyone. End quote. Ellsberg asks us, can humanity survive the nuclear era? We don't know. I choose to act as if we have a chance. For decades, he has put himself on the line to oppose those plans, writing, speaking, standing up, and sitting in against the threat of nuclear annihilation. Ellsberg has been hauled off to jail for civil disobedience against war over 80 times. On December 13, 2017, Daniel Ellsberg was on stage at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco. He had an engaging conversation with the club's president, Dr. Gloria Duffy. She and Ellsberg share a similar background. Duffy worked as a resident consultant at the Rand Corporation in Santa Monica, where Ellsberg had been six years earlier. She then was communications director at the Arms Control Association in Washington, D.C., this conversation at the Commonwealth Club took place during the Trump administration. Just four months earlier, in August 2017, President Trump threatened to unleash fire and fury against North Korea if it endangered the United States. Such casual mention of a nuclear strike frightened the world, and the media discussed the awesome power of the U.S. commander-in-chief to launch a nuclear war. You are about to hear Daniel Ellsberg discuss another frightening aspect caused by the handling of nuclear weapons. The many members of the nuclear launch systems, from the nuclear missiles on submarines and airplanes to the nuclear-tipped ICBMs in Wyoming, Montana and North Dakota, Ellsberg's research showed that literally hundreds of personnel have been given or shared access codes for a launch, or what Ellsberg calls a go. Gloria Duffy asks Ellsberg how he found out that launch codes had been so widely shared. 
but keeps the question suspended by wanting Ellsberg to talk about his father first. I specialized in the question of the command and control of nuclear weapons, not just the weapons themselves, which my colleagues were mainly working on, shelters, hardening, mm -hmm. this sort of thing, to the question of what information will the president have, and in particular, what's the possibility that there will be a goal from people other than the president, uh, an unauthorized action mm -hmm. of some sort. Mm -hmm. So I was loaned out by RAND to Commander-in-Chief Pacific, Harry D. Felt, on a naval research project on his command and control. And the emphasis from Felt was how to be sure that when I give a launch order, a go order, it will be obeyed quickly, you know, and we'll get through despite the communications problems. I concentrated on that, but also on the question, is it possible there would be a go without Felt or the president having decided it? I want to come back to that because having read your book, I know what you found out. But going back again to your background and your entry into this field, talk a little bit about your father and what he did. Well, my father was a structural engineer, out of work for a couple of years in 1930 to 32 during the Depression. So although he was a lifelong Republican, he revered FDR, who put him back to work, basically, with the New Deal. So I grew up in a family where we, we did revere FDR, but my father was basically a Republican. In fact, he later told me he'd voted for Nixon twice. And, uh, but, and so I, I respected him all the more for being so supportive of me when, this, uh, when the Pentagon Papers came out, just as Abe Rosenthal, the managing editor of the New York Times, actually was quite supportive of the war. And I gave him full respect for having put his job on the line to get those documents out as a journalist, despite the fact that he didn't like me as an anti-war activist, as an anti-war person, or any other, uh, any other activist. So my father then, during the war, uh, got his first really good paying job um, as the chief structural engineer of the Ford Willow Run Plant, which was turning out B-24s on an assembly line. And he took me once to that plant where, like sides of beef, uh, these B-24 bodies, you know, growing bit by bit along the line, uh, a, a line a, a mile and a quarter long in Willow Run. And at the end, when they were finished, they came down, were filled with gas, and they flew off to war. And then later, he was in charge of the Dodge Chicago plant, which made engines for B-29s, which carried out the firebombing of Japan and dropped the atomic bomb. But we didn't foresee that particularly. But you ask about my father. One thing I was just thinking the other day, that he did have great influence on me in some ways. He would come back with stories of um, the necessity for an engineer who did the blueprints, and he was the chief engineer, structural, to go out to the site and see what they were actually doing on the basis of these plans. And he, I remember many stories, I won't go into them now, but specifics, where he would go out and they weren't following the plan for one or another convenient reason, you know, things were happening differently, and uh, how you had to, to look at it. And when I was in the Marines later, 
I felt very much that influence on the necessity of reconnoitering myself as a, as a platoon leader and even as a company commander leader. I was a rifle company commander. And the necessity on maneuvers in the 50s of, I would stay awake for days, uh, two or three days at a time, actually going around testing security and doing this myself, very much thinking of my father's advice. Yes, you've given the orders, but what are they actually doing? Are they sleeping? Are they, uh, uh, are they carrying out the orders? I can see the relationship of yeah, that to yeah, very, many of your yeah. later episodes It's not in the book, life. but I, uh, it's behind. So let's talk about this cache of documents that it was kind of the Pentagon Papers number two that had to do with nuclear war plans and war fighting and chain of command and so on. You have a fascinating story about what happened to those. Um, you copied them. I think you copied 7,000 pages in all. You copied the Pentagon Papers, the Vietnam documents. You copied all of these other documents. You released the what became the Pentagon Papers. What happened to the other documents for all of these years? Well, uh, I had meant uh, to put them out after the Pentagon Papers on Vietnam, the decision-making on Vietnam between 1945 and 68. Uh, had had their run their course and had whatever effect they might have. And I assumed there would be a trial and actually several trials. There was a Boston grand jury working on the distribution of the papers while I was on trial for the copying of the papers and I was going to be in this second trial as well. But then I assumed, okay, when that's done, I will put out the nuclear papers, which I thought were more important, actually. I separated them from the others and gave them to my brother uh, who kept them, it turned out, in a uh, cardboard box inside a green garbage bag. And he, first he had them in his um, compost heap, in the, in the, first in his basement, then he transferred them to a compost heap. Then he decided when we were, my wife and I, Patricia here, were on the, uh, eluding the FBI underground for 13 days and they were searching for us while we were putting out to the other uh, 17 papers, besides the Post and the Times. Uh, he got worried that you know, the FBI was searching for me. They said it was the biggest manhunt since the Lindbergh kidnapping. And um, we were in Cambridge uh, all that time, but we were going from house to house. So my brother transferred them to a trash dump in Terrytown, New York. He buried them in the trash dump in a bluff uh, at the side of the dump underneath a green metal um, stove, actually, to mark the place where he had buried them. During that summer, while I was on trial, at the beginning of my court proceedings, uh, Hurricane Doria, Tropical Storm Doria, actually, <laughs> came and pushed the stove about 100 yards away in some direction. And the other contents of the bluff went down over the road and down the hill and whatnot, were pretty well distributed. I still thought one way or another there'd be a way to, to find them. And for a year and a half, he and some friends, uh, Barbara Denyer and her husband and daughter actually were spending every weekend looking for these. They even hired a backhoe at one point uh, to dig for them, you know, and they got a thousand garbage bags from this trash dump, but uh, none with top secret documents. And, so. and eventually, eventually they used Phil from that dump as the foundation of a condominium that was going up, covered with concrete. So as my brother said, it would take dynamite to get it. I had to give up 
Uh, and that was a very great anguishing thing for me. It was after the trial that I really fully gave up uh, on recovering those documents, which I'd always thought of as more important than what I had been doing. So the documents were lost. So what was your process of going back and correlating what you had copied and what you knew about with what was becoming available? As the trial commenced, my lawyer, Charles Nesson, of the, uh, he was the second lawyer of the Harvard Law School. Oh, someone knows him. Very good lawyer. He's still, still at it. And um, my, my main lawyer was named Leonard Boudin. Uh, Charlie sat me down at, um, at a house in the summer, and he said, we don't know anything about the secrecy system. Tell us what you know, how the secrecy system works. You know, you're going to be indicted. For, you are being indicted for this. In effect, my memory, though it seems a bit odd, is that he said, tell us what secrets you've dealt with. <laughs> Can't have said it in just those words, I think. But uh, something like that. And I sat there for over a week, night and day, uh, dictating to a secretary with a tape recorder uh, the work I'd done, which really constitutes the first several chapters of this book. So I really wrote the first draft of those, in effect, 500 pages of transcript. It's, I didn't mention this in the book. It's, yeah. um, back then, in, in 71, in effect. And when the trial was over, I, uh, I actually edited them a bit, typos and names of people, and showed them to an editor who said, we can't sell this at all. And I had to give up the idea of putting it out as a book at that time. So I set out to try to help build a movement against nuclear weapons, a nuclear a movement that you've had a lot of interaction with, I know, uh, that was like the anti-war movement, and that I hoped would have a similar effect. Later, for example, that I was very early on the bilateral nuclear weapons freeze, and uh, we could discuss afterwards what your opinion was at that time. We don't have to do it now. But it, it uh, wasn't highly popular in, the, in that administration. You weren't in the Reagan administration. No. no right. um, so uh, anyway, there, there was a big movement, actually, at that point. And then when the Cold War ended, uh, the movement pretty well dissolved and has never really recovered very much on the theory that that's over, that's history. And that applied, of course, to my history. Uh, and there wasn't interest in it uh, at that time either. But the idea was, uh, okay, now we're on the process of dismantling, getting them out of Ukraine and Kazakhstan. And we were going down. Actually, they did reduce 80% of the weapons. And yet, what I would call doomsday machines, we'll get to that, remained. The basic strategy, the basic structure of the response system, or the first strike system, has remained to this day. That shouldn't have happened, but it did happen. And it turns out that uh, I would say the same dangers remain despite this uh, decrease in the, in the numerical arsenals. And uh, so I find now that um, uh, really what I worried about in the late 50s, uh, not the idea of a Soviet surprise attack that we worried about when we had the delusion that there was a missile gap in favor of the Soviets, but since then, when there was, quote, parity uh, on both sides ever since, as there is still, I still saw a great danger that the system would explode. And I, I've seen that ever since. So I set out to do what I could to educate people about this. So essentially, your thesis is the same dangers uh, that attended the nuclear 
situation in the early 60s remain today? I and, would say so, yes, absolutely. And so let's talk about some of those. You, you referenced your work out in the Pacific, mm -hmm. uh, where you were doing research on the command and control system for nuclear weapons for the Pacific Fleet, for SYNCPAC. And you found what when you... Well... They were, uh, they were looking at whether top orders would be executed... What did you conclude uh, based on the documents and the interviews and the meetings you had out there? Mm -hmm. Well, let me summarize. It ties in with what you were asking earlier. I did go around ultimately to every command post in the Pacific, including floating command posts in 7th Fleet and elsewhere, and in Japan and Guam. Okinawa. And this is 1960? Uh, 59, 60 okay. uh, on this post. Looking at the field in my father's spirit, and I found, for example, a rather dramatic example, from that day to this, we hear about the two-man rule, that nothing can be done respecting nuclear weapons by one individual. It always has to be at least two people opening an envelope, turning a safe lock, you know, doing whatever. I found that this was disobeyed in every command post that I went to. Everyone had made arrangements that if one person, say, in a command post at night, uh, had to go attend a sick wife, or was sick themselves, or had to go to the PX or something like that, we would not be paralyzed if an order came through. So that they'd all arranged it, that uh, actually where they had rules like one person has half of a combination to a safe and the other has the other half, or, no, they both had the whole combination. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was true right across the board. As a matter of fact, when I discussed this with Bob Woodward after the trial in 75, he said, I know all about that. He said, I was the nuclear control officer. I think I mentioned this in the book. I was the nuclear control officer on a, a naval ship, and I know perfectly well. We all asked ourselves, how do we get this thing off if there's only one person around? Mm -hmm. you know, so that was true of the Minuteman launch systems and everything else. So there was a case, like my father, as I say, where the directive is one thing and the reality is another. There are a lot Very dangerous. dangerous. To that. Uh, well, uh, that isn't, you know, by itself dangerous. But then I found uh, another thing that was very serious and that I'm sure continues to this day. Not only in public, but even in our top secret war plans, it was always stated only the president can order the launch of a nuclear weapon. As, let me jump ahead here. There were no locks on weapons then um, at any level. And there are some locks now, but at what level is the combination held is a very interesting question. But at that time, everybody, even on an individual plane, had the capability of going along, uh, you know, launching the war. And that was true at higher levels as well. What I discovered was that Eisenhower had delegated authority to use nuclear weapons to his field commanders, his theater commanders, high level, like Sink Pack, like Admiral Felt. And I learned that Admiral Felt had subdelegated, had in turn delegated to people like Seventh Fleet and others, the authority to launch nuclear weapons under various circumstances, not under all circumstances. If the president was fully alive and, and well and in communication with everybody, he was, he was to be in charge. But if there was no time to communicate with Washington or if communications were out, as happened part of every day in the Pacific, 
and from Oahu in the Pacific, where Admiral Felt was, to the Seventh Fleet and elsewhere. Communications had weather disturbances in those days. They didn't have satellites. Uh, they had cables, but the cables had been cut uh, more than once in various ways by a trawler and other things. So they were on their own during that, as during the Komoi crisis of 58. This was so at odds with the top secret directives, supposedly, that uh, it was almost hard to believe, but I did brief McGeorge Bundy on that in his first month, first weeks in office in the White House as assistant to the president for national security. He was very startled to hear this and taking a lot of notes and assigned me to look further into it for the White House. And it did turn out, yes, the letters existed. It was another couple of decades before I discovered, to my surprise, that Eisenhower had authorized the subdelegation as well, the National Security Archive, you know, I'm sure. I do. Cotton Freedom of Information Act uh, things. And to my that was one of the few surprises I've gotten from reading this, that Eisenhower had actually delegated it to all these people. And that was continued by Kennedy and by Johnson, despite total campaigns. The, the campaign of 1964 was run on two major issues. Uh, against Goldwater uh, by Johnson. And one was the famous one of use of nuclear weapons in Vietnam and uh, for blowing the leaves off trees, as Goldwater said, you know, giving us a better field of fire, we'd use some nuclear weapons. That sounded crazy and that uh, got a lot of psychiatrists to say Goldwater should not have his finger on the button. That led to the Goldwater rule, mm -hmm. which was observed till now that psychiatrists could not diagnose people they had not interviewed directly. And some, a lot of psychiatrists this year have been led to violate that Goldwater <laughs> rule. They say, in the interest of national security, we, we have to say, you know, and so forth. Uh, this is dangerous. The other rule was that Goldwater called for the delegation of the use of these to field commanders. And Johnson said, uh, on the opening day of the campaign in my hometown of Detroit, where the Democrats always used to start their campaigns, in Cadillac Square. I have exclusive authority, you know, by the Atomic Energy Act. I will never delegate this. Only I can decide this. This is a paraphrase. Uh, you know, this is my highest responsibility, et cetera, et cetera. I knew that Kennedy had delegated, and I told Adam Yarmolinsky, who was the assistant to McNamara, I said, you know, as far as I know. And he said, look into that. I looked into it, and yes, Johnson had kept up that delegation. And in fact, much later again, uh, memos came out from George Bundy at that time, referring to Johnson and saying, oh, Mr. President, I do have to point out that you did delegate at the beginning of the year, you know, and so forth. Maybe we should put out something clarifying that statement, or lest we be accused of... Uh, fake news or something like that. And uh, Johnson decided, no, we'll, uh, we'll just go with it the way it is. It was continued by other presidents. And something like that has to be true today. There's so much concern right now as to whether someone that people perceive as, the way, as Goldwater was perceived as being a little deranged. Um, <laughs> they're worried. That has attracted their attention to the dangers of the nuclear era dangers that I would say have been there all along, mm -hmm. but he has attracted their attention. But no one has raised the question, aside, in fact, it's often been said, as before, only the president, that's worried people, you know, that's given sole authority, only this president 
can, but he can get his way, you know, in, in, which is the case. That is true. He can get his way. The military may raise questions about it. They may uh, urge him to rethink something. But if he wants, he wants a nuclear attack to take place, it will take place. If somebody really resists it, they will be fired and replaced by somebody who will. But what I'm very aware is that hardly anybody else seems to be aware, raising the question, it isn't only the president. And by the way, he may not be the only deranged person who has the power <laughs> to, uh, to reduce this, like the movie Dr. Strangelove, where a rogue, smart base commander gets it into his head that uh, the time has come to uh, launch this. That could have happened then, and I'm sure it could happen now. And I haven't seen anybody else say that. Uh, that was one of the respects in which Dr. Strangelove, the film, was very accurate. It can't be the case that one bomb on Washington, or one bullet on Washington, as in the case of Reagan, for example, uh, can paralyze a retaliation. Uh, people in Washington, well, what about the people at Mount Weather or the underground sites, you know, these secure locations that Cheney went to during 9-11? They're all targeted. They're all vulnerable. Uh, Offutt Field, where Strategic Air Command is, of course, a number one target. Harry D. Felt's uh, headquarters in the Pacific are uh, obviously a prime target. Can it be the case that bombs on each of those, we're talking 8, 9, 10, 12, will paralyze our response? That there would be no retaliation in the Pacific if Oahu is hit by North Korea, for example, mm -hmm. uh, which they have the capability of doing that? No, it was never the case, it is not the case now, which means that for any nuclear state, I would say, but certainly for the Americans, there are many fingers on many buttons. And what's almost more concerning about that is, that is also true for a state like North Korea. Uh, we're talking about assassinating Kim Jong-un quite openly. That's a change, you know, to be making so, uh, such open talk about that by both the South Koreans and the U.S. Decapitating North Korea, that's the basis of our plans as everybody has described them. Can it be that Kim has not arranged that if he is assassinated there will be uh, retaliation? I would say it's almost certain that he has. And that, uh, and possibly even if he senses an attack coming, mm -hmm. that would be crazy for him to launch an attack. Uh, as people say, he has planned an exercise. Mm -hmm. If we're about to attack, if we're in the process of attacking, not even with nuclear weapons, they will attack with their nuclear weapons against us. That would be crazy. They'd be annihilated. It would be the same plan as NATO has had for over half a century, exactly. Uh, just as crazy, and the same plan, to initiate nuclear war against the Soviet Union, against a nuclear armed state, as Russia is now, in the face of aggression or an occupation or some sort. That would be suicide, but that's the plan. And what we'll get into here, I'm sure, is it wouldn't only be suicide. It would be more like what John Somerville called omnicide. Everything goes. That was a conversation between Daniel Ellsberg of Pentagon Paper fame and the president of the Commonwealth Club of California.
Dr. Gloria Duffy. They spoke on December 13, 2017, after the release of Ellsberg's most recent book, The Doomsday Machine, Confessions of a Nuclear War Planner. This broadcast is part of a celebration of the work and life of Daniel Ellsberg. He recently disclosed that he has pancreatic cancer and has only three to six months to live. He remains active in his anti-nuclear work and wrote that his editor knows that he works better under a deadline. And Ellsberg adds, quote, it turns out that I also live better under a deadline. You can hear this program again for free on TUC Radio's website, tucradio.org. My name is Maria Gelarden. Thank you for listening.